We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to episode 439 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Dean Hilton, and unfortunately, the podcast that was scheduled for today has been postponed for tomorrow. But for you, that actually means a bonus podcast. So today is just me, and first you'll be hearing the five headlines from the game against Cadiz, which could be quite instructive to what we'll see against Manchester United. And then I'm going to dive a bit deeper into the referee story and a little more United preview. So first things first, if you already saw or heard the five headlines from Cadiz, you can skip ahead about 15 minutes or so, and we'll pick it up with some more United preview. All right, I'll see you there. Headline one is time for something. Unfortunately, I feel like we do have to talk about Ansu and Ferran Torres together. I was considering breaking this up, but I think because of almost the juxtaposition between the two, they're going to be spoken about kind of as one topic. So for starting with Ansu, who... You're going to have to say because Ferran Torres had a positive performance and Ansu had a largely negative performance, you know, I'm trying to figure out why that was. I think first and foremost, Ansu is showing way too much of the ball when dribbling in 1v1 situations, and Cadiz was just too easy to take the ball off him. There's also things about his performance where his confidence clearly wasn't there that are uncharacteristic of a player who has any bit of self-belief. He whiffed on the ball in the 14th minute, whiffed again in the 65th minute. And for him, I had to say, though, Ansu did have other good moments that I hope that he can hold on to. He had a nice move in the 71st minute right before he came off the field. And for the first goal, he had some good ball retention on a turn from a poor ball day pass. The ball goes over to the right. Torres goes by two more. And Ferenc cross finds Lewandowski. Roberto getting the rebound, obviously, and scoring that first goal. But that first goal all begins on a good run of play by Ansu. You know, for Balde, that could have been a turnover, but instead, Ansu made the most of it, if you will, and got himself free to get that ball in possession for Barcelona. They kept it, and some other players did some good things. They put the ball in the back of the net. And I do hope he remembers those kind of things, because clearly, seeing his body language on the bench afterwards, he is desperate, more than desperate, for a goal. Whether it's a stuff from his agent, himself, and not only his self-belief, but also wanting more minutes and wanting to be able to play himself himself into form. And it is that catch-22 where I completely see both sides of this. For Ansu, he wants to play more. He wants to get a good run of form. 90 minutes would be really helpful for him. Even 70 minutes would be helpful for him. But he's not going to get those, especially in important matches like Manchester United on Thursday. He just His performance is not good enough for a player to help his team get results at present time, unfortunately. But the opposite of that is that 
Ansu is the number 10 for Barcelona. They've invested so much in him, not only money-wise, but in terms of what he could mean for their future. So you'd want to make sure that you can play him through these downtimes so we can have some positive times. But that means that you have to play through it and maybe forego some positive results. And Barcelona, as a club, are so desperate to win the Liga and so desperate to win any bit of silverware this year. Even Ansu is not bigger than the club, if you will, in that sense. So again, I totally understand that Ansu, and I would love to see Ansu just get minutes, just get some time, get some starts, get something, anything to find some confidence in his game because it's not happening for him. Ferran Torres, though, believe it or not, I don't know how much this really changed big picture for him. He might just turn back into a pumpkin the next time he goes out, but you have to give him credit on the day. He did get the time, he did get the start, he did get the minutes, and he's the one that showed you something. It all kind of started for him in the 17th minute. He had a really good run, and he went, wait a second, we haven't seen that Ferran Torres in months and months and months. And then again in the 21st minute, he stuck into two tackles and got himself a shot. And again, he was showing those flashes where he said, maybe Ferran Torres has it there. Then the goal comes. Again, he goes by two more, finding Lewandowski on the cross, a perfect cross from Ferran Torres, Lewandowski's header. Trivic stop there on the line by Caddy's defense, but Roberto, as I said before, there for it. Unfortunately, not to be too negative about the Farron stuff, but I'm really excited that Farron Torres had such a great day. But the biggest problem for him is that his best position at Barcelona is where two players who are quite better than him are already playing, that being Dembele on the right and Rafinha on the right. So it's hard to imagine he's ever going to get a run of games where he's at his absolute best. And performances like this will likely never be a regular occurrence for him. So as much as I'd love to have him be able to take the ball and run with it, even starting him on the left against Manchester United, Ferran on the left, even what we saw to end the game, may not be the same Ferran Torres that played so well today on the right. So it is kind of frustrating that Dembele, Rafinha, and Ferran Torres who at the moment, just again, based on the 190-minute performance from Ferran Torres, that those are Barcelona's most three in-form wingers. Reason is they don't play anybody on the left, usually with the four midfielders, but they don't have enough midfielders to do that either, which I think is actually a perfect transition into headline two. Headline two is without Pedri. So this was the game where I was going to say, what does Xavi's, will say, new in-form Barcelona, kind of taking the last two months when Barcelona are just winning and winning and winning and winning with the two draws, so what is Barcelona's midfield going to do without Pedri? And I think, you know, making a little bit of history here, Sergio Roberto with his 230th start for Barcelona, which did surpass Rivaldo and equaled Stoichkov, which is really interesting when you think of those two vaunted names. I know people will say that Roberto has just found a way, especially when Barcelona have struggled in the last few seasons, to just stick around more so than Rivaldo and Sochov. But again, it's 230th start for Barcelona. So that means he's been on the field even more than that, which just tells you that he's been trusted by multiple managers through the years. So I don't know what that does for his legacy. I'm going to kind of go after his legacy a little bit in a second here. But Gavi, his 80th appearance for Barcelona, still just 18 years old, still pretty ridiculous for Gavi to be 18 and already made 80 appearances for Barcelona. But I can sum up this whole headline here about what Barcelona would look like without Pedri is that when you have Roberto as one of the interiors, it's going to be a lot slower of ball movement. And it wasn't necessarily Roberto who was tasked with being able to fill in for Pedri. It was Gavi who played on the right instead of Roberto who played on the left. So the formation also did change for a 4-3-3, but I find it interesting that the responsibility of the right interior, that being Gabin's situation compared to the left, was a similar job. And I think Barcelona not only were on the front foot for so much of that first half, but Barcelona did get those two goals as well because Gabi was arguably, I think, the third best player in this game behind Ferran Torres, Andres Christensen, who we'll talk about in a second, and then it was Gabi. I think those three in particular led the charge in this match for Barcelona to take what should have been and what was three pretty simple points against Cadiz at home. 
And it should be noted, too, for those who were kind of frustrated with Caddies finding their way in the second half into the game with those six chances, it, not just one or two or three, but six chances. All of that kind of did happen once DeYoung was subbed out of the game. It wasn't a sparkling performance for DeYoung, but I consider it for a player who's, you know, he wanted minutes. He was worried he was going to be a backup center back or forced out of the club in the summertime. Well, Frankie DeYoung, I don't think you can come off the field very often. I know he was subbed out of this game because Xavi simply has to be rotating him for Manchester United. That made all the sense in the world to put Kessie on at that point. But once DeYoung came out, that's where Barcelona lost control. So I don't know. I'm not going to be that crazy about how Barcelona did struggle against Cadiz, a team who are facing relegation. Okay, And it should be noted, too, that Barca has played twice in the same week plus thinking about Manchester United. So it's not like Barcelona gave 100% effort in that second half. It, it always was kind of comfortable with that 2 nothing lead. Now, if that foul on Ter Stegen doesn't happen and negates the Cadiz goal, but it wasn't, and Barcelona were always up 2 nothing. But losing control does have its negative stuff. Again, Roberto, as that pivot, it really wasn't working for Barcelona to continue having control in the match. Same thing with Kessie also taking on a much larger responsibility. It's just that's not those players. That's not their style. That's not going to happen without somebody like Busquets, mainly, or De Jong, or Pedri, all players who can control the game much better than that duo. It also means, though, that losing control means that Pablo Torre was going to spend much of the second half warming up, but wasn't going to get his chance. And these games really are the only time he'll be getting. We did talk about it on the latest podcast, and I'll probably be writing an article for Barca Blog on him in the next few days, so I'm not going to harp too much about a player who did not play in this game, but yeah, certainly for those Pablo Torre stands out there, frustrating to not see him on the field. At least on how Alakan did get his chance. He committed a foul, but hey, he ran his pants off, and I think he actually did, that being the 18-year-old, help bring a bit of intensity back to that front line that Lewandowski in the second half, I think he was getting ready for Manchester United. Speaking of Manchester United, Mr. Christensen, Xavi probably sort of started Andres Christensen against Manchester United. We saw that again with his performance today. And along with Eric Garcia, he read that first half offside perfectly. That was really the only danger from Cadiz in the first 45 minutes. He was also, that being Christensen, really reactive to the moments when Koundé got forward as the right center back. And for Christensen, who's been playing on the left, he seems to be comfortable as he's been all season, just solid in anything that Xavi has asked him to be. Today, next to Eric Garcia, who is kind of the more vocal leader, it's interesting the way those two, Christensen kind of led with his legs and led by example, if you will. And Eric Garcia, you could clearly tell when he's on the field, vocally, he's a leader. He's orchestrating things, talking things through, and then also using his, as I keep saying and mentioning, superior passing to continue to put pressure on that Cadiz back line that I think really did wear them down for those two first half goals to happen. There are also important defensive moments for Christensen. 52nd minute tackle was simply huge. And very much like Christensen, Kunde this time goes back to his illegal form as opposed to what we saw in Champions League. And Ter Stegen, he had a wild day, sure, but still a clean sheet happens. Regardless of how it happens, still a clean sheet and making some history too. Barca becoming the first team in the Liga history to keep 17 clean sheets in the first 22 games of a Liga season, breaking Deportiva La Coruña's record from the 1993-94 season where they had 16 clean sheets in their first 22 games. So I don't need to tell you that. Ter Stegen also making a bit of history on pace to have the most clean sheets in the Liga history for a goalkeeper. Also for Ter Stegen, history in a 57 start for Barcelona, surpassing the great Pep Guardiola. So again, interesting to note that Ter Stegen, I know it still feels like because he's a guy now that he hasn't been there for a long time, but Ter Stegen has been in our lives for eight years if you're an FC Barcelona fan, and he's been the number one for a considerable amount of that time. Now, finally, for Eric Garcia, Xavi did say beforehand that he did want to give him minutes and that he was being unfair to him. 
And what is true is that obviously, and this time, yes, Cadiz is fighting a relegation battle in the Liga. Even an unfit Eric Garcia should be able to be one of the few players rotated. And honestly, regardless of the Manchester United result, I would start him next week against Almeria, that being Eric Garcia, because Almeria are in rough form and Eric should be able to start that game. If Barca beat United, I would even consider starting Alonso and Eric Garcia together. It might be headaches for Kules, <laughs> sure. There's going to be some nervy moments, but I do think that even that center back duo should be able to handle Almeria at the moment. But we'll have to see what Xavi does, and we'll have to see what happens on Thursday. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The only knock on this back line who did have that clean sheet today was that Keddie did keep winning the first ball on set pieces, corners, throw-ins, and all the like. But if you do watch a few of those Roberto and Eric Garcia positionings, as well as Balde, I'm a little less concerned with Christensen and Tersegan did have his moments, uncharacteristic. I don't expect him to do the same thing, and I thought Kunde was actually pretty solid on those set pieces as well. So you add Ronald Araujo back into that equation, and that is not something that I think is going to carry over to be a worry against Manchester United. All right, headline four, Lewandowski's one and done. The Lewandowski goal put the game away, and it was one of the rare moments that he actually got on the ball in a spot to set something up. Against that low block, then a mid-block of Cadiz when they were looking to try to put numbers forward, he had to drop in quite a bit, that being Lewandowski, to make numbers in that makeshift midfield. And then he would also switch fully with Ansu out to the wing, something he doesn't do when Gabi is playing as an inside forward. Gabi always stays underneath him. So Lewandowski spent quite a bit of time on the left, actually, in that first half, supporting Balde and Roberto, when Roberto would also kind of move centrally a bit when Gabi would get forward onto the right. And then also when Kessie came on, Lewandowski was doing the same thing. So there were numerical overloads on the left that Lewandowski was contributing to. And believe it or not, that actually is what led to the second goal. Roberto with a dribble because DeYoung got forward, not minimizing the attack. And while Lewandowski didn't begin the second goal that way, it was his movement earlier on. It was expecting him to come in and drop in, which he did prior to the run by DeYoung. So Roberto has a dribble because DeYoung got forward for a rare time because they were expecting Lewandowski to come into that space. Instead, Lewandowski kind of just hung out in the middle there. And I don't want to minimize the assist at all from Roberto, sure. But that was a confident Lewandowski goal. He faced up the goal the whole way, set himself up, and finished. The goals being three minutes apart. 
I think a lot of different people said it well that Lewandowski only really showed up for one moment in this game, then he was kind of done with it, but it was the only moment that he needed to be in because they were able to put Cadiz away. Now you just want him to give more moments because against Manchester United, it does take more than just one chance like this. They're not going to give him that kind of space. So you need Lewandowski to show up on more than one occasion against Man U in a way he didn't against Cadiz today. And speaking of, again, headline five decisions for Manchester United. If you were one of those that hoped that Barca would come out of the game against Cadiz with more answers about who should play against Man U, I think you came out of this one a bit disappointed. Rafinha was rightly rotated, and Gabi played 90 because he's suspended on Thursday, but Gabi did a fine job filling in for Pedri. And so I'm not really sure there's another answer at that spot as I already spoke about. It's not Roberto, it's not Kessie or De Jong. And that's a big problem for Xavi, even if he plays a 4-3-3. But again, it won't be fair in Torres on the right. Rafinha will be on the right, and Ansu definitely isn't right to start on the left, or at least that at the moment is a gamble for Xavi to start Ansu. Busquets will be starting, we know that, as will Christensen and Koundé likely, and Araujo definitely, he was rotated as well. So I don't know what Xavi will do, and maybe that's a good thing that I don't know, but honestly, the answer not jumping off the page of me has me a bit concerned. I do feel like in Xavi's time in charge, and for those who've been with me for a while, you know this, that I don't know. I feel like Xavi does make some pretty pragmatic and dogmatic moves, and you can kind of guess what he's going to do. It's just, do the players fulfill their obligations to what Xavi put forward? But this time around, yeah, I'm not really sure. Okay, so I did say for headline five that the Cadiz match didn't really prove anything other than Barca being in trouble against United. And on paper, they are in trouble. Ten Hag is getting Marcel Sabitzer and Lissandra Martinez back. Martinez will likely take Shaw's place as a left center back and push Shaw out wide to the left, which will make Rafinha's job a little more difficult. While Malasia was more dangerous going forward, if United want to slow the game down a bit, Shaw will help them do just that. For Sabitzer, I could see him taking Fred's place, but honestly, Fred did the job he was asked to do so pretty, to pretty good effect. He turned the ball over and wasn't great against Barca's pressure, but he also paired perfectly with Casemiro to turn Barca over as well. Sabitzer profiles as a player expected to turn the ball over less and play through Barca's press better, but he won't take the ball away as often as Fred does. So that's a choice for Ted Hogg to make, and I hope he makes the wrong one. If Anthony is fit for the second leg, he may also get the start or at least be a problem in the second half. And if he's fit, that means Ten Hag may go back to what we've seen more often from them this season, Bruno coming back from the right to take Veghorst's spot in the middle, Veghorst moving to the 9, and then Rashford taking Sancho's spot on the left. And that change may happen because I do expect Xavi to start his first choice back line of Balde, Christensen, Araujo, and Koundé in that order. Koundé at center back and Alonso as his partner was a big problem that we talked about in the five headlines, against United we talked about in the podcast, and because Alba didn't offer that final ball, Barca lost out on that position defensively without Balding to make up the ground. The key will still be Rashford though, and the fact that Ten Hag can use him in the middle or on the left is a bit concerning, but as I said, he did well when attacking the right half space, not the left, that being Rashford, and that was down to attacking Alonso, so I'm hoping that that option isn't the same thing here in the second leg. That said, he's averaging a goal every 76 minutes in the Europa League, so Barca should expect to need to win that game by scoring at least two goals. He is the most informed forward in the world of football at the moment, scoring 16 goals with 30 shots on target, more than any other player in Europe's top five leagues. He has a shot conversion rate of 22.6%, which is close to the top across all forwards, and he's doing it in the EPL. I know Barca has Lewandowski, but Rashford is in much, much better form right now than the Polish striker. A reminder too that there are no more away goals, so this one may need extra time to be decided. But due to the disparity in depth, I wouldn't feel too confident about that. In fact, and I will be negative here for a second, I backed Barca in that first leg, but I absolutely do not back them now. 
On the expected goals chart from the first match, they were both, that being both teams, about even. 0.4 expected goals through about the first 28 minutes for both, but almost the moment Pedri got hurt, that figure doubled for United. Barcelona's two goals didn't really raise the count because of the fluky nature and way against the run of play that they were scored. And Barca's expected goals finally jumped over one for the game around the 87th minute when Barca were pushing for the winner. United's expected goals, though, hit two just after the own goal was scored during that stretch of sustained pressure where United scored the two goals in seven minutes. And I know it's a lot of talk about expected goals, but I'm using those numbers to illustrate that Man U will have their moments with Pedri and Gabi missing. Barcelona will likely, even with the young and Busquets, they won't have control over this match. And especially going forward into the final third, I think Barcelona are going to have a hard time keeping possession and keeping Manchester United pinned back the way that Pedri and Gabi do with their possession and ball retention. You know, I, I don't look forward to going through the game and explaining what Barca is going to be without Pedri and Gabi. And without Dembele too, Barca may not see any radical jumps in their expected goals. Dembele is the player, and without him, there is not a player that breaks the equation of expected goals the way he does. However, I don't want to underrate Rafinha either right now. He has scored five goals since the World Cup break, and even though he was taken off in the 83rd minute, he has more shots with six and shots on target with three than any other Barca player against Manchester United. And he might be the reason why Barca move on if they do. And I would say, if we're having a conversation at the end of that game that Rafinha was the man of the match and we're all singing his praises, well, I think Barca have moved on in that way. And with Busquets back, which Xavi did say, I think you should expect Busi to start. And then De Jong will be to his left, and Xavi also hinted that Sergio Roberto and Ferran Torres will start. So Torres on the left, and Roberto is the high right interior. Then with that back line I already mentioned, I expect them to start, Ter Stegen obviously in net. And Kessie is your option off the bench to take Roberto's place and get higher into the box if you need a goal. So not even a break lasting case of emergency, but hey, Barcelona need to be pushing. They haven't had possession all game, really. And by possession, I mean control of the game and doing the most with that possession. So Kessie winds up being your option. And Ansu Fati may be in terrible form, but it does only take one. And he may get 10 minutes off the bench to get one, especially if Barcelona is trailing again. So going back to those expected goals... Barca's jump happened as Ansu was pushing late against Manchester United. So that is something, just a little nugget of positivity for you. And I will say that unlike some European matches last season, I think Barcelona does have a strong 11. But I am pretty pessimistic, something I'm usually not, as you know, because as I say often, Barca generally needs to be the better team in Europe to get a result. And it is worrying to me that not only is United much healthier and their best players are in form, but they're also at home. I do hate the idea of Barcelona as the underdog, but they are in this scenario. And that's not usually a position they thrive in. That said, I'll be elated if they pull out a win. Really, really elated. And I don't care if it's the Europa League. This would be a huge victory for the rest of this season, like the Spanish Super Cup was. Even though that's a second-rate competition too, it doesn't matter. Barcelona need to have success at the club the way the last few seasons have gone. And now for a really awful transition to another topic, it hasn't been great for Xavi to try to focus on such an opponent while dealing with the referee controversy in the background. And I did realize that Levan and I didn't really explain the details on the last show, so I did want to go over them here and give a little more two cents on what we know now. Jose Maria Enrique Negleria is a name to know. The former vice president of the Spanish Referees Committee, or the CTA, from here on out. Over the course of 20 years, he was paid 7 million euros by the club. 1.4 million from 2016 to 2018, and this information coming out during a tax inspection. Payments were made to a company run by Negreria's son, but owned by Negreria, who was a referee from 1977 to 1992, and then the vice president of the CTA from 1994 to 2018. Once the payments were seen by the tax office, 
They moved along to the state prosecutors, and that's how this all began, the investigation. And then that investigation about the payments is concerning that there was no evidence of the services on the invoices, which I'll say for the first time here, does elicit the idea of wrongdoing, that there was no evidence of the services on the invoices. The payments have been tracked back to as far as 2001 under the presidency of Juan Gaspar, but follows through the presidencies of Oporta in his first term, Senator Rosell, and Jose Maria Bartomeu. Barcelona's response, as in Juan Laporta's response, was to admit that Agreria worked as an advisor by preparing reports and guiding players on refereeing concerns, something that many other clubs utilize as well, but they do not use a vice president of the CTA. The problem being that Negreria was in a position that brings up the question of foul play, that's why we're having this conversation. It wasn't as if he was a retired referee or a consultant with an ethical dilemma on his hands. This was not a person in that position who should have been, I say, doing what he was doing. Negreria, of course, denied benefiting Barca with any decisions, saying he only helped with verbal consultancy, and that his son, who was a refereeing coach, would be the one who submitted any videos or written reports. So Negreria cannot be connected to anything of any evidence, if you will. So that was the argument about evidence. Where things look worse for everybody is, of course, with Bartomeu. Of course, with Bartomeu. In 2018, the payment stopped because Bartomeu was looking to save money, obviously. Negreria also left the CTA that same year. And there was evidence that Negreria wasn't happy that the payments were being stopped, and he demanded 200000 in outstanding payments, and provided a vague threat of a scandal that never came about due to what he called irregularities. The main question is this for Barcelona. Why the heck would they pay the vice president of the CTA for anything? If it was just reports and analysis of refereeing decisions, shouldn't they have gone with someone unaffiliated? Yeah, obviously. If they were trying to gain some kind of favor, why go with a man that now seems to be quite the piece of work and so difficult to deal with, and seemingly didn't give them any favor at all? Like many Barca stories, my gut says that it is not some nefarious action that we can accuse Barca of, but more ignorance and gullibility. I would believe that Barca thought they were getting information, not favor, but information that Negreria didn't really deliver but he convinced him that the information he provided was the best that they were going to get out there. So Barcelona, once again, as they did for so much of the last 20 years, it seems, paid a premium for something that didn't really help them that much. The worst part of all this for me, though, is that it becomes a fan base versus the world debate in the court of public opinion, as opposed to actually with tax prosecutors and in an actual real court or or law-driven investigation. It's not just something wrong and getting punished. Other Spanish clubs, with the exception of Real Madrid, have signed on for the desire of an investigation into Barcelona, and Javier Tebas, the Liga president, is of course leading the charge against that and making this, I mean, again, a thousand times more dramatic than honestly it even needs to be. Just punish the club if they did something wrong. Just have the investigation, get it done, instead of creating some kind of thing, oh, maybe they did, and if they did, then we're going to bring the hammer down, of course. To step outside the story for a second, it is also frustrating part of football discourse, No one has any idea what Barcelona were getting for their money. So sides must be drawn to assume what those things are. And the greater frustration is the hand-wringing must continue as we litigate what is moral and ethical. Is paying for referee favor highly unethical? Of course it is. But because the story can be translated to football terms, that means what happens on the field, it can be better cast into a scenario of right and wrong. When it comes to the chairman of the Qatar Islamic Bank buying Manchester United for $6 billion, the endless moral question of such a financial transaction can't be litigated on the field. Barca dropping into the Europa League and losing Messi was football crimes for their economic sins, and more easily digestible for short-form online discourse. Being owned by its members does mean that you can punish individuals for their crimes, while the club itself is also punished. If Barca did do something wrong, i.e. exchange 7 million euros for favors that they may not have benefited from, they will still be punished. But Laporta, of course, will be punished more than all others and be ousted as president. 
and it will be the next president's job at Barcelona to clean up the mess, including their public image. But because you're talking to people who have to do moral gymnastics to support clubs like PSG and Newcastle, the club itself is the thing that must be punished because they are one in the same. And to be honest, and not even cynical, dark money is constantly exchanging hands at the top rungs of the football ladder. And the more winning that Barcelona and Real Madrid do, the more you should suspect that they're involved in some kind of dark money and back dealings. As in the Super League, which it seems to be completely transparent because it has to, in the court of law, go against UEFA. So because Super League is going to have to be pretty transparent, honestly, and I continue to say this, it is no more unethical. And that's not me supporting Barcelona and Real Madrid and wanting to be a part of keeping up with the Joneses. But it is no more unethical than the FIFA World Cup or a number of the EPL ownership groups. If anything, from a human rights violation, the Super League isn't really committing any human rights violations yet in the way that FIFA and the EPL ownership groups are. And some of them, not all of them, of course. So the frustration with Kool-Aid is that Barcelona always seems to be in the drama. And that is what I'm frustrated about as well. So why does the club keep electing presidents? And the answer is, of course, wealthy Catalan society making itself richer through a global football club. But why does the club keep electing these presidents that are either too greedy to stave off bad decisions or just unfit for the job due to stupidity and ignorance? To be clear, I'm not talking about Laporta, or at least exclusively Laporta. I think Laporta still was a good president for the club now on two different occasions. And I also think he should be punished for any wrongdoing if that's in fact not what he's accused of, but he gets involved as a former president of Barcelona. Not this one, but a former president of Barcelona that gets connected to those payments. And he should be punished in the same way that those other former presidents should be punished. But I am dubious to a fair and balanced investigation at this point, and if that can ever occur in Spain due to the relationship between he and Tebas, at least in, in a footballing court. It had to do in an actual legal court. So I'm left defending a likely very flawed president in Laporta, but I've said a hundred times, I think he's a president still leagues better than Gaspar and Roselle and Bartomeu, and I think that the club can return to some kind of prominence. Uh, I, but again, that's where we leave it at the moment, that stories like this, they create noise, and Barcelona is something that is a club that builds itself on its brand of, you know, Mescaun club and being this ethical and moral landmark for football clubs. It is one of saying, hey, I am I support a club ethically that does things the right way, that doesn't need dark money to have success on the field. But I, I think that's a really sad thing about the, the legacy that Barcelona, I think the world football leaves behind. That again, the more winning you do, I mean, with Napoli winning Serie A, you know, they seem to be a little untouched because they've been on their way up. But I give it five years or 10 years before we're asking questions about Napoli in some way, too. That's just what seems to happen with success at the top level, because, I mean, that's just what it is. It's greed at, at any point as, as high up as you go. I also think, too, as we talk about the EPL and their branding and all that stuff, Liverpool did the same thing. I'm not sure you hear the same response that Barcelona gets. I do think there's a story that is driven more so by the club involved, that this is not the first time that Barcelona over the last few seasons have been stuck in this thing where, what did they pay $7 million for? What did they pay $15 million for? Why were they on social media creating anti-player accounts led by their president? What is happening? And because it's Barcelona, and because it's Spain, meaning Spanish politics and Catalan businessmen and chaos in the courts, this is a confusing and convoluted story you get. And the more confusing these stories are, the worse they always seem on paper too. That's another thing I'll add. So I think that is enough for that. There's another podcast that should be out tomorrow on a totally different subject. And then it's Manchester United on Thursday. So I do hope to talk to you all then. And as always, for the Barca. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.